0: Hello and welcome to episode 161 of the NFL Scotland podcast. We are bringing you a little bonus extra this week to celebrate the return of the NFL. My name is Cameron Hobbs.
1: And my name is Paul Mitchell. You know from listening to this podcast, we love our NFL. We love the broadcasting of NFL. And today we've got a very, very special guest who broadcasts across both television and radio.
0: So we're absolutely delighted to be joined now by someone. If you've ever listened to the NFL Scotland podcast, you'll have heard me and Paul talk annually, regularly, about the broadcasting in American football. And every year we talk about the best and the worst of it. And every single year that we've done it, Paul, there's one name that has sat atop the list. And we're delighted to be joined by that very name now. Please welcome to the NFL Scotland podcast, Kevin Harlan. Good afternoon, sir. How are you? Uh, Cameron and Paul, I am great. I'm honored to be on with you. Thank you
2: for your kind words, and it is uh, it's great to see both of you and talk to you,
1: Kevin. It's tremendous to hear that that rich voice of yours uh, coming across Scottish airwaves, which is which is wonderful. You've obviously had a long association with broadcasting, but I'd like to cycle you back to to how it got started for you. Uh, you'd be, a, I presume, like any young man growing up. You know, you had a great interest in sport. Now your your dad did work for the Packers. You come from Wisconsin, the home of the Packers, the Brewers, the Bucks, there's minor league hockey. Were you sports mad from the off, Kevin?
2: You know, I was. Um, Paul. I enjoyed it certainly, but to be quite honest, the the thing that got me really kind of into broadcasting and then kind of served as a portal to sports was listening to the great voice of John Facenda. Now, people over there may not know who he is, but he is the original voice of NFL films. And if you've ever watched some grainy black and white or or kind of old-time color uh, highlights of the Packers and Chiefs in Super Bowl I and those early Super Bowls and really through the 80s, John Facenda's voice was the voice you heard narrating NFL Films highlights, and I remember hearing the voice and watching the highlights of Super Bowl one when I was about eight years old, and I, the voice caught me first, and then the action on TV grabbed me second, and from that point on, I was pretty much hooked on broadcasting and on sports. My dad at the time uh, was with the St. Louis Baseball Cardinals, and um, they had some terrific teams Bob Gibson was on that team. Roger Maris, who set the single season home run record with the Yankees, was at that time with the Cardinals. And um, so I used to go to spring training in Florida with him every every March and uh, got to be around batting cages before games and clubhouses and on the field with the players and in the press box. And then he went to the Green Bay Packers in 1971 to run the front office. And then I got the, the, the great opportunity to be, in, again, in the press box during Sunday afternoon games at Lambeau Field or on the field um, as a ball boy during a summer training camp. So those things kind of went hand in hand. And um, as a kid during my lunch break, when I was a ball boy during those summer training camps, um, I would sneak away, run up the stairs, go into an empty press box, look at an empty field before me, and recreate games when I was about 11 or 12 years old. I could scream and yell and say whatever I wanted. Nobody heard except me, but I was kind of living out a dream of thinking, you know, maybe one day I'll be good enough to get into the NFL and do games. And sure enough, many, many years later, with the help of many people that believed in me, I was able to do it. So that's kind of how it all began. I got to see and back of, uh, you know, behind the curtain, so to speak, of what a press box was like, what a football team was like, what a baseball team was like. And so the fact that my dad was in the business really opened up many doors and 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 many opportunities for me.
1: You say that, Kevin, you know, doors and opportunities, but you've got to have the talent in the first place. You don't get anywhere without talent. When did you realize that the voice was there and that you could give this a real goal?
2: Well, when I was, when I was a young teenager, you know, 12, 13, 14 years old, I used to do games with the sound turned down in my television, a football, basketball, baseball, hockey, like I did everything. And I know my parents were standing outside my bedroom door wondering, okay, we like got a crazy man on our hands. here. like, what, (laughs) like, Oh my gosh. Like he's, he's in there, but that's, I loved it. And, um, I went to a high school in Green Bay, Wisconsin, that had a small student run 10 watt radio station. And when I went to high school and I was 14, I had already had this interest. I was working on my delivery and my voice. And I tried out for the play by play job on football and got it when I was 15 years old, when I was a sophomore in high school. And then did that throughout high school. So the fact that I was able to start so young working on voice delivery. Cadence, all the all the important things of broadcasting um, really paid off, and then that led to work in college, and then my first job out of college was in the NBA. I was doing um, they're now the Sacramento Kings at that time they were the Kansas City Kings, but that was my job Uh, when I was 22. The day I graduated from college, they basically offered me the job, and and that's how I was lucky enough to begin. You know, most people. We'll begin broadcasting after college in small towns. They'll be doing, you know, a variety of things. They'll sell advertising. They'll do games. They'll be on, they'll read the news. They'll run booster clubs, but so they'll do, a, they'll, but they'll do it in a small town and they'll do all kinds of different things. I was one of the rare fortunate, very incredibly lucky cases of going right to a major league job right out of college. That really doesn't happen very often. And so um, all this kind of built toward where I am now, um, a person who believes in preparation for sure, but it's delivery that is the number one thing. And when I have college kids and high school kids send me links to their work, I can tell within about the first 20 or 30 seconds what they need to do. Some are phenomenal. And I'd say you're ready to go into the business right now. There are most of them, though, that I hear that need to work on delivery and voice, cadence, pacing, rhythm, all these things that I think, you know, make up a a good play-by-play broadcaster on radio or TV.
1: You mentioned radio and TV. I mean, they're two very different animals. I'm blessed to work in both. They are two very different animals in terms of of how you deliver. How do you treat them, Kevin? How do you treat a radio assignment versus a television assignment?
2: Well, Paul, I love radio. When I grew up, I used to dream. I would fall asleep at night when I was like, you know, 10, 11, 12, listening to games on radio and would fall asleep listening to these voices. And I was captivated by uh, not only the delivery and how great their voices were, but just how they used words, how they reported, how they. Could conjure up with their with their sentences an image in my head of what kind of catch it was, or what kind of throw it was, or what kind of, you know, uh, three-point jump shot it was. Like, like all they did was just use their 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 vocabulary and their reporting skills in these faraway arenas and stadiums and venues um, to create this picture. And there is a purity in broadcasting with that, because when you do radio, um, everything is on the play-by-play guy. It's being the consummate reporter. It's making sure you've got the right adjectives to use to draw that picture in that listener's mind. It's the inflection of your voice when something big happens that the listener knows I better pay attention here because something big has happened or is about to happen. The buildup in your cadence and the buildup in your inflection. And then making sure that you can really punch it home. And uh, when there is that big play, but describing it the right way, reporting on it the right way, and then constantly doing things within that radio broadcast score in time, give me a lead sentence. If I were going to write the lead sentence of a story, what would that lead sentence be? Tom Brady has thrown two first half touchdown passes. The Buccaneers lead the Dallas Cowboys with nine minutes to play in the second quarter. Right there tells a listener all they need to know, time, what's happened and and, and, and the big uh, headline through you know that portion of the game. So doing those things and, and making it like a part of the the repetition is hard to drive home. but once you've captured that, I think you've served the listener well. On television, Paul and Cam, what, what you've got to do as a play-by-play broadcaster is back up to the fourth row because first and foremost is the picture. And if a picture's worth a thousand words, I don't need to say anything. I can let the picture speak for itself. Number two in TV is the analyst because the viewer can see what's going on, but the analyst tells you why it's working or why it's not. Number three on television is the bells and whistles, the graphics, the replays, and all the fun things that make a picture so compelling. And then number four is the play-by-play guy, where you just kind of fill in the gaps a little bit, identify the ball carrier, uh, how big the game was. Um, what that p- frame the, the play and what that means, and then get out of the way and let the analyst do his or her job. So um, that's why I love the responsibility and the purity of radio, because it, it encompasses everything you need in broadcasting. Whereas in television, you really do take that fourth or fifth seat in back of, of what makes it go. And there's an art to both. And I appreciate the challenge of each.
1: I've never heard it described as backing up to fourth row. That's a brilliant, brilliant way way to look at it. Kevin, I'm with you. I mean, I love radio. I adore doing radio for the reasons that you outlined. You are the picture. You've got to, to give everything. And over in Scotland, we had, when I was growing up, the only access we had to American sport was the Armed Forces Radio Network, which came out of Germany. Um, so I used to listen to the likes of Jack Buck, Hank Stram, oh, call the oh, Super Bowls and things heroes. like that. I got hooked in exactly the same
2: way. <laughs> I'm so glad. Yeah, it, you know, when you listen to those people, and you two certainly um, appreciate the business of broadcasting, and and I, I I said a second ago, it's art, and it really is. There is a skill and an art to it. And you just mentioned Jack Buck and Hank Stram. One, a legendary broadcaster in the U.S., and the other was a very famous football coach. And Armed Forces Radio carried those broadcasts. They may still carry Voice of America, Armed Forces Radio, may carry our broadcasts, especially the bigger games. And and, um, I know that that they were as important as any two people um, by just the way they were as friends on the air. It, It was a comfortable listen. And it sold the game, I'm sure, to all of Europe and, and overseas. And so I'm so happy, uh, Paul, to hear you mention those two names, because when I was growing up, I would drive around at night in, in Kansas, where I was living, and would I'd say, could I ever? I mean, like, it, it, if you would have told my 20-year-old self that someday you would be in that Monday night broadcasting seat and putting on those headsets for CBS Radio and Westwood One, and your broadcast could be heard worldwide. I mean, I, I would have just, I would have just said, "You're crazy." There, there's no way that that could happen. But I think part of any person that has been a has found success in any business, re- regardless of its broadcasting or coaching or or banking or, or 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 medical, whatever it might be, is that you dream big. And and those were the dreams that I had when I was a kid about someday maybe. Uh, you know, being good enough, being lucky enough to be in that seat. And and sure enough, here all these years later, I I find myself there. And every time I put on that headset and utter my first word, I do uh, close my eyes and say a small prayer of thanks that I've been so blessed to be in this position and enjoy my job. So I love I I hate the travel, but I love my job and the challenge it presents me every Sunday on CBS TV and every Monday night on CBS Radio Westwood One.
0: One of the things you talked about there, Kevin, was when it comes to television, there's an awful lot more going on in the background. There's a number of people in play. Um, One of the biggest challenges I'm sure you face is building the repertoire and the relationship with the people that you have to work with. And, you know, regularly we we see people moving around. What for you is the most important thing in establishing a really solid working relationship with your co-commentators?
2: That's a great question, Cam. I I would say that um, number one is you treat the lowest person on that list of workers that day and whether they're delivering you water during the game or running to get you a, a stats page or whatever it might be all the way to the person that's producing down in the truck who kind of leads the broadcast. I, I think you treat everybody the same way. And and I always talk to the crew and I said, um, uh, you know, this broadcast, uh, it, it's, like, it's like a duck on water. Um, when you look above the water, a duck is just seamlessly gliding through this pond and 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 just floating and and with without a care in the world but if you looked under the water you'd see those flippers those legs flapping a million miles a second and furiously trying to redirect itself as as it's navigating that pond and I, that's kind of what a broadcast is in television it's 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 a it, you see us on air you hear our call you see these pictures magically appear in front of you on the screen. But little do most people know that in that broadcast truck and in that press box booth, there are literally hundreds of people furiously trying to find that replay, cue it up so that when the director calls for it and the producer points to it, that it comes on there. Then there's a sound person and a person that helps the sound person. There are people that that string the cable all over these stadiums. There are camera people that are trying to furiously find the players that we're talking about. There, There's, I mean, every level of that broadcast happens because every person with their hand on that rope and pulling in the same direction is not letting go. And I love the, the, the analogy of don't let go of the rope. Everybody holds onto the rope. If somebody lets go of the rope, and we're not pulling in the same direction, we don't pull as hard. We don't pull as well. We don't pull as one. Um, and so I always equate it to that uh, weakest link in a chain chain link. You know, so so you know you bring those things, and you want to make sure that everybody that's a part of that broadcast feels like their fingerprints are on the success of that broadcast. So when we do a game, and this past weekend we did the Miami Dolphins at the New England Patriots. Actually, I Actually, did three games. I did on radio the, the Dallas Cowboys and Tampa Bay Buccaneers, then flew to Boston and did the Patriots and Dolphins, then flew to Las Vegas and did the Baltimore Ravens and the Raiders in Las Vegas, three games in five days. I think about all the people that were involved to make those broadcasts go out, the people back in master control at New York for both radio and TV, the people that were helping us in the booth, the people in the truck, and and I'm so grateful that they're all taking this job as seriously as we are, and uh, and that that is a good feeling. And if you make everybody feel like they're part of it, I do think you get a better performance. You 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 get a sense of pride uh, in each and every one of them and what they're doing and how important their job is.
1: See, I, I think that's fabulous, Kevin, because I know. On the occasion that that you might be looking for something, something doesn't quite work. You know, if you're treating people properly, they're going to pull out all the stops to help you. Um, And I I think that it's terrific to, to get a relationship like that you mentioned the the three games that you did now I mean, I would have thought preparing for one NFL game was hard enough (laughs) given the number of players and storylines uh thankfully you won't have to do three a week very often but how how did you cope in terms of preparation for all of that
2: well um you know uh Paul it's 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 um it's every day kind of prioritizing what you've got to do so every day I wake up during the NFL season And I've got about four things that I've got to check the box on. I've I've just uh, come heck or high water. I've got to do it. I've got to make sure that I read all the stories about the two teams I'm going to do that morning and then write down uh, uh, on a a notebook um, the the, the headlines that I think I need to know. Um, I need to make sure that my spotting boards are up to date and continually being filled in As I get toward kickoff uh, day by day, hour by hour, I've got to make sure that I watch tape of the previous game of the two teams that I'm going to do Uh, familiar with the way they set up their offenses and defenses, uh, the players that are at the forefront of their success, the important players on both sides of the ball. And then the fourth thing that I've got to do every day is I've got to go back and review my broadcast, whether it's a quarter, whether it's a quarter and a half, but do that on a daily basis. Because if you're not working on self-improvement and working on getting better, as the famous commentator John Madden once said, if you're not getting better, you're getting worse. And that's so true. There are so many great young broadcasters and so many things that the public needs to hear. And you need to self-check all the time. When I was a young broadcaster, I would send my work to others and said, can you give me just a couple things that you hear that you like or don't like so I can continue to build? You know, it, it's easy sometimes to pick out the things that are enjoyable, but it's the hard things that make you a better broadcaster. It's the mistakes you make that you want to improve on that then lead you to another broadcast that could hopefully be better the next time you put on the headset. So the the self-analysis uh, the, the grading, the review of your work, I think is important. Now it, it's it's torture to listen to yourself because yep. you either don't like your delivery. And when I take off the headset, I can pick a thousand things of the broadcast. I wish I would have said differently, handled better, uh, whatever it might have been. Uh, but that's the only way you learn. So you never take off a broadcast uh, headset and feel like, oh, I, I nailed that one. I, I, I knocked that out of the park because I don't think I've ever said it. I think the best broadcasters always feel they can do better. And when it's live broadcasting, radio or TV, um, th- those are the pitfalls. You know, those guys writing the stories, the people that are putting together the, the reports on on, on Sports Center or on the local TV network, um, you know, they've had hours to pore over what they read, how they read it, the right words, um, cutting the right tape, having the right highlight. When you're doing it live, there is no edit. I mean, you're, you're doing it live and you screw up. It is out there for everyone to see and hear. And those are painful lessons, but hopefully they lead you to improve down the road. So I find self-review is a very important component of staying and maintaining uh, the level that you're at as a broadcaster.
1: Kevin, do you have someone that you respect. So, I mean, we're mired in a world now of social media, and there's millions of comments and headline writers and everything like that. You know, there's a lot of noise about, about broadcasters. But if one guy was to pick up the phone and say, Kevin, that wasn't your best, who is it you
2: listen to? Well, I would listen to someone who's in the business because the people that are writing usually about your work have never broadcast before. They know nothing about... Um, the preparation, uh, what you were going through in the booth, if there was a technical problem that you don't even mention on the air, but maybe, you know, f- uh, f- messed with your call in some way, a headset problem. I mean, there are a hundred different things that could affect the call. So if uh, number one, you listen to your bosses because they're the ones that will put <laughs> yeah. you on the air. So if they've got something to say, <laughs> you you better well know that I'm listening to what they say, but um um, you know, you don't you don't get that very often. Um, if you are in dire straits, if you are in a place of peril because something has been said or done that's a part of your broadcast or linked to you, uh, you may reach out to a fellow broadcaster. Um, but uh, by the grace, of, and I'm knocking on wood as I say it, by the grace of God, that, that does not really come across my doorstep. But if it did, there are a few people that I'd probably ask, hey what do you think what are your thoughts can you give me your honest appraisal and and they would give it um uh, the ones that you cherish are the ones from people that are the giants in the business and i'll just give you just a very quick example i was doing an nba broadcast in the playoffs this past spring for tnt here in the states and i even forget the game that it may have been the lakers the la lakers and the phoenix suns but Part isn't important. What is important is a person that I think is perhaps one of the would be on the Mount Rushmore would be like on the four faces that you'd put on a, on a, on a uh, side of a mountain that are like the, the pillars of sports broadcasting, uh, Bob Costas, um, uh, he had sent me a little text after a game that I've kept to this day with some very complimentary things, but not just, Hey, great job. Way to go. But like gave me three things that he specifically enjoyed, and I loved him, and and I I've kept it, um, and it was so, um, my my heart was just so touched by his he, I, he didn't have to, um, I've only communicated with him a couple times, and over over the decades, uh, but have respected him as one of the great broadcasters in American television sports history. And, and he took the time to just text me a, a you know, a seven or eight line little message. And it meant so much to me. Um, and I, I've kept that. And, and when I get down and feel bad about a broadcast, I'll go and revisit some of those, not necessarily to build my esteem or my ego back up, but to look and see what he said specifically that he liked. And it always kind of brings me back to where I need to be. I mean, I don't know how you guys are. But I, I constantly, I, I, I have, when I do a TV broadcast, I have about 12 columns that I feel that I need to fill per play. And if I don't, for some reason, on a particular play, and there are 180 NFL plays, give or take, every game. If I don't fill out one of those boxes on a play, I feel like, like I've, I've not been complete. Radio, I have a few less because there's just so much you can get in in, in that amount of time you don't want to overload the listener. But on television, things like did I lay out um did, did I did I tag something my analyst said to kind of put a stamp on on what that person may have said to make it look like we're a cohesive broadcast. Did I did I name the ball runner? Did I did I talk about the game? Um did I mention the tackler? Did I talk about a block like all these things? And if I don't do it on a play, um it, it feels like I've kind of failed on that play. Did I, did, was my, and that, then, that, that, that's just the nuts and bolts, X's and O's. Now, the other things that I write beneath this chart that I've made, you know, uh, is my voice strong, you know, things like, like key words that I want to trigger in my mind, how I want, want to sound. Was I deliberate enough? Did I have the kind of rhythm? Um, d- did I keep my voice in the ribbon? of highs and lows that I want to, like all these things. But so it. it for, I, I mentioned art now for a third time. There is a science and an art, I think, to broadcasting. I'm sure some people think I'm like a, a loony bird and think you're, you're nuts, like you're getting too much in the weeds. But I think that it's the details that make the broadcaster and a broadcast. It's always, right? It's always about the details. I talked to Kobe Bryant one time about a jump shot. And Kobe Bryant for five minutes went on and on about where his shoulders have to be, how his elbow has to be, where his eye has got to be, how the ball has got to sit in his hands, where his foot angles got to be like, like all these things. I just thought it was a jump shot. He walked me through like 29 different things that on every shot he quickly has to rattle through before he gets that shot off. And it just kind of secured in my mind that maybe my thought process isn't uh, so off the beaten track and that you need these these details to make the whole. And so I kind of clutch
0: onto those to those details. It's so important that you talk about the weeds there, but I think for me as well, and you touched on it with Kobe Bryant there, the, it's the weeds is where the, where life is, begins. You know, it's right down at the earth. That's where the, the nutrients are. And, and in broadcasting, it's kind of the same. It's right down at that bottom. It's that fundamental stuff that is the difference between someone who's got a great voice and someone who's a great broadcaster. Uh, and there, well, it, it's a full well picture. Said. It's a full well, picture.
2: Well said. You know, we, we've all heard people with the great voice, right? And um, but the content doesn't fit. So it, it is delivery and its voice. And it's probably the first thing you notice. Um, I, my daughter is in broadcasting and she does sideline for college football and now is gone into a more hosting role in the NFL. But I told her, I said, I said, a well-told story with a wonderful delivery and an impeccable cadence on a subject that is just kind of, you know, maybe not all that interesting, is so much better than a great topic, a terrific story, poorly delivered. Because a poorly delivered story, you're not listening to the story. If you're a listener or a viewer, you're watching on her trip over the words, or you're watching on the uncomfortable um, demeanor she conveys on the TV screen or she's gotten the the um a participle wrong or the verb wrong or something um, but if you can take a story about a mound of dirt and it is delivered with a cadence and an eloquence and and a and a, and a refined um uh, structure it is so much better so it, it it's all about delivery but then if you've got the delivery, now you go to the second stage and what is he telling me? And I can, I can list a thousand different examples of people that I've heard who are blessed with a great voice, but for whatever reason, just don't have the mechanics or they're not wired in their brain the right way to tell you what's going on. They're not a good reporter or they don't know football or soccer or whatever. And, and, and you can tell. So like it, it's, it's, You know, all these things having to kind of hit a bullseye to make it work and to make it, you know, I think very enjoyable and potent
0: for the viewer, the listener. You mentioned there your daughter. Now, was it 2018 that you and Olivia were able to make history where you were the first father-daughter broadcast team to ever cover an NFL game. Packers 49ers at Lambeau Field, I believe. How It was, it was yes, yes. How it was. important was that to you? And how significant was it as well to be doing it at Lambeau?
2: Well, aren't you nice, uh, uh, Cameron, to bring that up? And I, I thank you for that. No, we are very. We have four children. We're, pr- we're equally as proud of all... All four of them, and I did tell the kids, you know, when they're growing up, I said, "What you've been able to watch and experience in our home has been a very fortunate person in the broadcasting business, because the vast, vast majority are are uh, frustrated. They're not where they want to be in terms of their careers. Um, they're constantly maybe looking for work. I mean, it is a very unforgiving business." So I said, broadcasting may not be the business you want to pursue. We have three daughters, and our our baby is our son. and um, and especially for a woman, because a woman is graded on a whole different scale than a man, unfortunately. Uh, a man can get up there and deliver a report on TV, and you just hear the report and you see the guy, and you don't think it. a woman gets on there and holds the microphone and looks into the camera. And you're looking at her earrings or her hair or her lipstick or her, or her shirt or her, you know, whatever. And they're graded on such a different scale and uh, uh, sports being maybe more male dominated. And, and, you know, you'll have some pretty rough comments on social media about someone that, that may not have the right color outfit or bad hair or lipstick or whatever. And so they're graded on like a whole different scale, which is, Incredibly unfair, but that's that's the world we live in. So, I told her, uh, this is Olivia. I, I said, I don't know that I. I think it's a very tough business. You've only been a part of the best part of the business, but there's a very good chance you'll go to college and be in broadcasting, and then you'll have to go to some uh, you know outpost in a in a in a state where you don't want to live in a small town where you don't like, and it doesn't have the glamour that you've been incredibly fortunate to see our family have with my career. And she gave me the uh, stiff arm and said, dad, I'll take (laughs) it from here. Thanks. And so she went right through college at the university of Georgia and worked hard. I told my wife, Ann, I said, I said, we'll know how serious she is about this business um, by how she conducts herself in college with all the fun and all the social activities because those are some of the most important years you need as a broadcaster to develop so many things. And by God, she worked long hours. She worked and missed fun social events all through school and proved to herself and, and us that she was serious about the business and got a job much like I did right out of college at a network and began her career. So, um, um, but it is very hard, and it did kind of not culminate because she's still climbing in the business and enjoying the challenges of it and learning and enjoying the the, the different things that the business presents. But we did get a chance to have her on an NFL sideline. It was first time a father-daughter had ever been on a network NFL broadcast in the States, and uh, we are very proud of her, and she did a terrific job. And it was at Lambeau Field where her grandfather had run the Packers for 21 years, Uh, Where I had grown up as a kid and where she literally as a baby, we had pictures of her crawling on the field in the press box. I mean, she basically grew up at Lambeau Field uh, from the times we were up there. So it, it was very, very gratifying for her, for me and for our entire family, for sure.
1: That's fantastic. Kevin, Kevin, you make the distinction, and, and I've written it down here. I wish you could, my, my pad is now full of notes, by the way. Okay. I think you're right. I think there's a difference between what somebody you would class as a commentator, because I, I often say anyone can be a commentator, but it's very few people that can be a broadcaster. Uh, and a lot of people don't get the difference, but the, the broadcaster understands the full picture of, of what's going on, why it's going on, you know, all, all the nuts and bolts. That, that you talked about. Let me just talk, talk about Lambeau field for a moment. Is that the, the spiritual home in terms of commentating for you? You know, when you go there, when an assignment is there, is that your favorite place to be?
2: It is um, uh, Paul. I, I, it's the third oldest uh, professional venue in the States. Um, Wrigley field for baseball in the Chicago Cubs, Fenway park at Boston in major league baseball, for the Red Sox are the two oldest in the United States for professional sports. And then Lambeau field, which uh, dates back to the fifties is the oldest continuous NFL place. Uh, The Los Angeles Coliseum was built back in the twenties, but does not now house an NFL team. It has off and on over the many decades it's housed a couple of Olympics but right now it doesn't. Lambeau Field has continuously had an NFL team there in the Packers. And the Packers are one of the very uh, first professional football teams in the United States uh, uh, being conceived in 1919. So while, well, you know, it's so funny in the States, we look at a building, oh, that building was, uh, you know, was built back in 1905, in and I'm thinking, you have no clue because in Scotland and my wife and I have walked in the castles in Edinburgh and, 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 in your wonderful country. Um, I mean, things go back hundreds and hundreds of years, <laughs> but here in the States, of course, we go, Oh my gosh, back to 1923. Um, so, so, you know, it, it's a, it's a completely different perspective, but Lambeau field has had historic moments. It's got one of the flagship franchises of pro football. And I've always said that if someone came from Scotland or wherever and visited the United States and say, take me to a place where NFL football has history and meaning and everything else, and you would probably take them to Lambeau Field in Green Bay, which has been renovated, but the original bowl is there and the original footprint is right where it is. Um, historic moments on that field at those points on the field are still there. And uh, many of the original parts of that stadium still intact that you can see. And and that makes it a special place. And for the people that are listening that may not know, Green Bay is is what the NFL was when it was first conceived uh, in the late 19-teens. Um, It was the NFL was a collection of small towns of factory workers that got together and played football in places like Decatur, Illinois, Duluth, Minnesota, Canton, Ohio, and in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And Green Bay has lasted all of these years. The team in Decatur, Illinois became the Chicago Bears. The, the team in Duluth, Minnesota, became another team. The team in in, in um, Canton became the Cleveland Browns. Like So you have all of these places, all these small blue-collar factory towns that began professional football, and none began in big cities. They eventually moved to big cities to New York and Chicago and then eventually Los Angeles. Um, but Green Bay has been the only one that has survived. And to this day, Green Bay is owned by the community all these old uh, old time teams that are in the chicago's and the new yorks um, they had wealthy owners green bay was always a team that was owned by the city and literally over the decades to keep the team solvent they would pass around a hat at halftime and people would give donations with nothing in return they'd give ten dollars or twenty dollars And that is how they kept the team going. Not not ticket sales, donations. And that happened various times. And to to cap it off, they have sold stock that is worth nothing but the paper that it's on. So for $250, you could buy, you two could buy in, in Edinburgh, I could buy, we have, our family, buy a $250 piece of paper. And all it, said is you are, all it says is you are a Green Bay Packer stockholder. And what that money goes to is has been keeping the team solvent. Now, because of all that generosity over the many decades of people giving out of their pockets in a donation, getting nothing in return except having the team stay solvent, the, the team has been able to survive, be a part of the windfall that the NFL is now, and now they have... Uh, they've got uh hundreds of millions of dollars in their war chest to stay solvent they're part of these 32 teams that now every franchise is worth at the very least a billion with a b and more or less worth four billion dollars apiece so it's a it's a great american success story the town of Green bay is still only a hundred thousand people the stadium sits In neighborhoods that are in and around Green Bay, you can see uh, the factories in the distance, the smokestacks from this small town. It is not bulged in size. It has stayed the same size. So it's a a wonderful little story. The most unique story really in all professional sports
0: in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. Now we can't let you get away with mentioning that you came to Edinburgh without digging into that a little bit more. Of course, came over here 25 years ago this year to commentate on the World Bowl as the famous Scottish claymore, sadly no longer with us. Um, won their one and only. Uh, we'll call them World Champions because we played the World Bowl. Surely that's yes, the big one. Was. And we'll yes, come on was. to the Super Bowl <laughs> to wrap this up. But how was your experience, right, How was your experience of Edinburgh? And how did you find the facilities at Murrayfield compared to what you were? used to dealing with in america and don't worry we won't be offended
2: very on par (laughs) and you i'm i'm honest uh, i'm going back 25 years in my memory but very on par never blinked at at really many of the european stadiums were where the uh uh, european league of the nfl the the world league of american football it had many names over the years it was there And it was, for our family in particular, and I was with Fox at the time, my first four years of network broadcasting um, were at ESPN. And then I went to Fox when they got the NFL network. I was doing the Kansas City Chiefs on radio and then went to Fox. And um, my wife and our two oldest daughters went over and had a chance to enjoy Paris and London and Frankfurt and Amsterdam. And then my wife and I, with our six-week-old son, who literally was put in a shoebox uh, as we flew across the Atlantic. That's where they that's where this that's where the flight attendants put him, in a shoebox uh, on the floor at our feet, um, slept and, and laid as as we flew. And um, we flew to London, took the train to Edinburgh. And I can recall so clearly walking around your beautiful city, soaking in all the wonderful the, the big castle stands out, and I, I I will apologize not knowing, but I remember going up the long, winding uh, road to get to the castle, spending a lot of hours there, walking the streets of Edinburgh, captivated by its charm, the wonderful friendliness of the people that live there, and how they welcomed every one of us from the states and the NFL with open arms. And there were a lot of people there with um, NFL ties. And one small story, and you may know this, um, at the time of that World Bowl, there was a very famous general manager with the Kansas City Chiefs, a guy named Carl Peterson, who had family roots in and around your area. His daughter met someone from Scotland, uh, married this gentleman, and I remember clearly seeing pictures of Carl Peterson in a kilt um, as all the people in the wedding were in this kilt and um, thinking what a, because at the time Carl Peterson um, was a very big proponent of building football across the pond in Europe and specifically in Scotland. And, and I remember that as clear as a day, the couple is still married. I think Carl visits there constantly, his daughter, they live there. Uh, in and around that area and and so that is one of the lasting memories. The other one was we had a wonderful dinner the night before at a at a, a at a golf course with a beautiful restaurant close to the golf course. and I, I apologize for not knowing the name. Uh, here in the states we would call it a country club where they would have the beautiful building associated with the, with the links. And um, I remember my wife and I left this dinner and walked outside at like 1130 at night. And it was still bright. Like, we're like, Oh my gosh, look at this. Like we're just, we couldn't believe it. And so anyway, uh, our memories are wonderful. And um, um, for many reasons, but um, the, the hospitality that was shown us uh, was unforgettable. and, And that probably sticks as much in my mind as anything.
0: I wasn't aware of that story about Carl Peterson, but he did send or certainly the Chiefs sent us Dante Hall for a season. So, you know, that's yes, that's, that's yes, a fair trade. Yes. We're quite <laughs> quite happy to receive Dante So nothing else. He yet. was
2: some kind of player, wasn't he? Absolutely. Very fast, very quick player, yeah.
0: I mean, we're <laughs> claiming the credit for that. Obviously, Scotland made Dante Hall. There's no two ways yes, about that. Yes, you know? <laughs> yes.
2: He was he was a and he in the NFL was a dynamic and famous player player in fact he was so prolific on the field that he uh appeared on many of the late night talk shows here in the states i think he was on with david letterman on cbs uh he, he was on i think maybe with Jay leno on nbc so no he was it was a he was a major major player at that time in the nfl
1: kevin you you obviously do nfl you do basketball as well we, we get a lot of that over here as well do you have a secret sporting passion, something that gets you away from what you broadcast? Is there something else that you enjoy?
2: Well, um, um, we uh, uh, when I'm with my family, we go up to a place uh, uh, during my off season, which is after the NBA playoffs, uh, up to a place in northern Wisconsin. I grew up in Green Bay, as I had mentioned. And it is very it's on the water. It's on Lake Michigan. There are seven great lakes in the U.S., as you know, and this is on Lake Michigan. And we go and we spend our summers up there. So when I am finished broadcasting, I basically try not to watch any sports. I try to read some books that have nothing to do with sports, but I usually am drawn back to sports books. Uh, Spend a lot of time with my wife. We've been married 34 years and have a chance to relax that way and and look at sunsets and boat a little bit and we have a wonderful group of friends and and no one ever asked me about my job up there which is the best part of all because it just seems like when i'm in season that's all anybody wants to talk about uh the nfl and and the nba and college basketball so up there i'm just a regular guy and i like that i enjoy that time and we've taken our kids up there every summer And they've had jobs uh, scooping ice cream or taking sailing lessons or fishing or whatever. And that's provided a very nice uh, time for us. Uh, When I'm broadcasting, my most favorite thing to do when I am in season is the Monday night radio. Um, It it pays the least, but has the most satisfaction. And I probably see a day when that is all I'll do. I'll, I'll end my career doing just that, because as I, I began telling uh, you two gentlemen, um, it, it, it serves to me the, the the biggest challenge, the most gratifying thing when I've called a play, for instance, we just had this Baltimore Vegas game and uh, the Raiders winning last second, basically in overtime over the Ravens. And there were some crazy things that happened at the end of that game, but I've gone back and listened to a couple highlights and I was satisfied, not over the moon, but satisfied with how I presented a very complicated situation. And um, that that just gives me, because it, it, it radio, as I began telling you, is everything that broadcasting is to me. It's being a good reporter. It's having the right delivery. It's having the right cadence and understandability of your sentences and your call so that it, it, it's without a shadow of a doubt, you know what kind of catch a guy made on the sideline and where it was on the field and what it means to the game. And and so those are the things that, that, that probably bring me the most satisfaction. I dreamt of it as a little kid. And when you can live the life that you've dreamt of living, it is a very um, potent and very satisfying thing. And you feel very fortunate.
0: Well, we're don't we don't want to get in the way of your preparation. You've got the Jets Patriots this weekend, don't you? Yes, yes, in New York, yes. What's yes. your what's your sixty second preview on that one?
2: Well, I just think that we've got two young rookie quarterbacks that were highly successful in college who are right now as individual kids, twenty two and twenty three, holding the weight of each franchise on their shoulders. Uh, The Jets have been winless for decades on a consistent basis, and they're always looking for the next quarterback. They think they've got it in the Zach Wilson. And then the New England Patriots um, are searching for the next Tom Brady, which is impossible because he's the greatest NFL quarterback of all time. But if there is a young um, emerging player that might be able to fill that role, that fills every uh, sentence that the head coach Bill Belichick is looking for in a quarterback. Nonstop football studies continuously watches endless film. Is a perfectionist. Is a, is a slave to the details of quarterbacking. They may have found their kid in a national championship college quarterback at Alabama uh, in Mac Jones. So we go into this weekend in New York with these two rookie quarterbacks holding the weight of each franchise, both very intriguing, talented, colorful players, and it kind of maybe is a look at what will be in the years to come for both teams.
0: Any last questions, Paul, before we let Kevin get back to his – planning.
1: Yeah, Kevin. I just like to say I appreciate the, the time you've given us. I've loved listening to to how you do it and your ethos, which which is just brilliant. They, they sometimes say never meet people that you really really love, like. <laughs> and I have to say you haven't disappointed in oh, any way, Kevin. i that, that is absolutely genuine. Kevin, the one question I've got to to finish off: you have an exceptionally distinctive voice. Now, I would imagine even going into Starbucks and ordering a coffee people <laughs> will recognize. What's the funniest situation you found yourself in where somebody's clocked your voice?
2: Oh, um, uh, probably in situations like this, if I'm getting a cup of coffee or ordering some food where there's a line in back of me and <laughs> and people will not know what I look like necessarily, but they will hear my voice. You know, it's not the voice that I I dreamt of when I was a kid. My my voice. Um, uh, you some of these names you may hear may know, but uh, um, I mentioned John Facenda. You know when we started our, our conversation, Pat Summerall, a longtime NFL voice, um, uh, Don Criqui, Jim Simpson. There was a very famous broadcaster in Baltimore who did the 1958. Uh, NFL championship game, which people consider the basic launching point of the popularity of the NFL between the then Baltimore Colts and the New York Giants. A guy named Chuck Thompson. Um, those are the voices that I tried to mimic when I was young. I used to listen to fifteen seconds of how they broadcast. I would broadcast the same words myself. I'd play it back and forth and go, well, "Why don't I sound more like this guy?" And, and, um, and it just never, it just never, you, you're you kind of born with the voice you're going to have. And um, it, it's like Bocelli, you know, the great opera singer. I don't know who he grew up listening to, but there's only one Pavarotti. There's only one Bocelli. And <clears throat> I've kind of talked myself into thinking that, yeah, no one can sound like either of those two. No one can sound like Pat Summerall or John Facenda—they all had their unique sound. And while it's not the sound of my voice that I thought I would have or dreamt that I would have, it has been um, good enough to get me to a level that I'm I'm able to enjoy. But I work on my I work on my voice literally every day to some degree before games um, uh, when I'm in a hotel room. Um, uh, especially when my wife isn't with me, I'll go in the bathroom, which is very good for kind of tuning your voice, getting it warmed up because the reverb in a tile bathroom in a hotel, and I'll talk into a corner and I'll say a couple of lines that I've liked the delivery or I've liked the way the line sounded and um, try to warm up my voice and get that in my head. So I can quote unquote, kind of visualize the voice that I want that afternoon at the stadium. And, uh, you know, opera singers warm up and they go through something similar to that. I don't know if they warm up in a bathroom. I think some do. I th- I think I heard it from somebody at one time and it's a great little exercise. And I pass it on to people that after I get out of the shower and I'm drying off, I'll begin. I try not to talk the first thing when I get out of bed. I'll let the 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 hot shower kind of, you know, get my... Uh, you know kind of breathe in some hot air to kind of moisten my my vocal cords a little bit I'll drink a lot of water as much as I can in the morning to kind of lubricate them but i but one of the things I do is I go into the bathroom as I'm working on my hair straightening out my tie or put it whatever and and before I leave that hotel room I'll practice a couple of lines with the reverb of the bathroom and it really seems to kind of get my mind wrapped around the kind of voice, in delivery. I'd like that afternoon. And it's, again, it's, it's something that I do that maybe no one else does, but, but it, it, it has, it has been a part of my uh, game day routine. So, um, um anyway i uh, they're just uh i forget what your question was i got i think i got off on a tangent there and i'm i'm very i'm very sorry um it was but-
1: a, it was a much better answer than my original question that's fascinating <laughs> that, that that's the kind of insight we were hoping to get for you it oh, okay. is ter- yeah. terrific that, and, Honestly, yeah. that. That is great.
0: And genuinely, just to close this off, you've brought it round to this, and I wrote this down earlier as we were speaking. The way that you talk about broadcasting, for me, we've spoken about rhythm and beat. You know, great broadcasting has to be lyrical. It's composed. It's in tune. It's almost like great broadcasting is music without the melody. And I think if that's the case for us, you're the absolute bandmaster. And this has been a joyous conversation with you that we've thoroughly enjoyed every second of. Um... Uh, and I think that, yeah, when it, you're right. it's There's a science to it, but above all else, it's an art form. Uh, we love it. We love listening. Thank you for everything that you do. Thank you for being so good at what you do. And ultimately, thank you for joining us today. It's been a pleasure, uh, she, Kevin.
2: Uh, Cameron and Paul, it's been my pleasure. And I, I will end with this. You say uh, it's like singing. And um, um, there is a lot of the words I write down that are in and around uh, camera, what you're talking about. I, I put melodic because, um, there has got to be a rhythm, a continuous rhythm, a melodic feel, singing, if you will, when you're calling a play. Uh, because it, the play is graceful, the words that need to accompany that play need to be graceful, melodic, with a rhythm to them. So I'm glad you brought that up, and that is exactly how my mind is. Kind of geared. Now it wasn't 20, 30, 40 years ago, but it's the constant listening and thinking about it when I wake up in the morning or go to bed at night or if I'm driving to the airport. I think about words that will serve as a trigger in my mind that will get me on the path i need to be and you know i mean some days you got it and some days you don't some days you 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 can't make a mistake and other days it's like you're pulling words and sentences out they're so for whatever reason it's hard to capture that rhythm but i'm glad you said singing melodic lyrical those are words that I write down at the very top of my boards to kind of, during a commercial break, I'll look down there and I'll say, do I have the kind of sound that I want? And then that covers delivery. Then, then I have things, am I doing the things on my checklist about down and distance and the ball carrier and position and tackler and all the things that I feel I need to do? Constant reminders that I need to keep telling myself. It's an ongoing process but I do love the challenge. That being said, um, what a joy to visit. Um, You know, my wife and I are looking, we we like to go places every summer. And with the pandemic, we've all been limited in some form or fashion and one place that she wants to go again. uh, And I'm not just saying this because Mm -hmm. we're on this podcast with you and you're in Edinburgh, but, but is that part of the world? We have such wonderful memories from many years ago, 25, as you say, years ago, and and we plan to uh, spend a couple of days in London, and then we're going to take the train up there and and revisit where we once walked. And we are looking so forward to that. And this has just gotten me even more excited by talking to the two of you today <laughs> about about what that trip might encompass uh, in the coming years. So we we are de- it is definitely on our list of places to visit. But thank you uh, for your interest and your kindness and your wonderful world uh, words. They are most appreciated, and it's it's been my privilege to be on with you too.
0: Thank you. And if you do make it up here, there's at least a whiskey on us. At least one. Watch out what
2: you say. My wife can knock down great, great shots of whiskey with the best of them.
0: Excellent. Well, there's plenty here. We won't run out. I promise. Thank you very much. Thank you. Paul, how much did you enjoy that?
1: Cameron, I can't begin to tell you how much I enjoyed that. Um, There was just, I mean, I've got a whole page of notes, not realising, of course, I can go back and listen to the podcast again. Um, But it's just fascinating, the voices that Kevin mentioned, the preparation, the difference between a commentator and a broadcaster. Now, it's something I talk about a lot. Anybody can commentate, very few people are broadcasters. And I think Kevin painted that picture absolutely beautifully, it is an art. Commentary is an art. It's one of these things a lot of people say, I could do that, but actually you can't. And I'm, I'm just being absolutely honest. You can't. It takes a certain skill set. Uh, whether people think I'm any good or not actually doesn't matter on this occasion. It takes a certain skill set to get that out. And I think Kevin illustrated that absolutely beautifully. And you know what, Cameron, what was even nicer is he came across as an absolutely decent bloke. And that in the end is really all that matters
0: isn't it yeah to give us an hour of his time even given that he is two days away from uh, an NFL broadcast and the amount of research that he'll need to put in um, absolutely brilliant to speak to him and very indulgent on our side and you know you mentioned there about you know people can't commentate I can't commentate right now I'm I've been working on it and I hope one day to be in a better position to but I know that I'm (laughs) so far away from being able to be that storytelling broadcasting type of commentator it's something that I would love to be able to do aspire to be Uh, and doing this podcast I certainly think and you know people listening to it you know we do this live we do this in one take we very rarely edit it so it is as good as a live podcast but it's it's difficult i and i listen back to podcasts and i listen to myself I'm um and air and i go oh why did i say that or, or i really slurred that sentence and things like that it's it's very difficult to go back and do it but it's so important and it and it's so refreshing to hear someone who is established and is experienced and as decorated as a commentator and he's still doing that
1: yeah i mean honestly my notepad i i've learned so much in the last hour um, it, It's incredible. And it's great. You can. You never stop learning. You never stop self-evaluating. You know yourself, you're, you're a very good reporter. You're a very good presenter to the podcast. You've got another area you want to expand on. And, you know, it, it's not just something that comes without the work that goes into it. And I think people sometimes don't get that. I mean, social media makes a lot of broadcasting very difficult at the moment. You know, the instant takes, the instant reactions and and things like that. I'm, I'm as guilty as, as the next man of you know, of things like that or to point out when I feel people are overhyping and, and things like that. So I'm not claiming perfection, but it is an art form. It has to be learned. It's got to be worked on. Um, and it's incredible. When Kevin was talking about, you know, he got his first job at 22 and a voice in the, the NBA. But, you know, that, that was a lot of hard work from being a young kid and working all the way through college. You know, um, of course, Kevin and Harlan and I have got one thing in common. (laughs) Okay. We both started our professional career at 22. How about that?
0: There you go. There you go. <laughs> I look forward to you covering the Super Bowl at some point in the future. <laughs> no, 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 no.
1: We're not anywhere near the same, the same level. And for people who are audio only, my hands are indicating He's that there's a massive, massive He's gap. He's flapping.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, right, before we wrap this up, we've had the benefit of watching that Giants-Washington game. What were your takeaways from that? First of all, my one, Graham Gano. Wow, man is absolutely on fire. There's not a kick he would have missed. I think they could have, he could have stuck it through from kickoff. <laughs>
1: Just it was brilliant. brilliant. I mean, 30, thirty-four in a row field goals is a Giants record. It's utterly tremendous. I thought it was a great game. I thought it was slightly strangely officiated, Cameron. If I'm being perfectly honest, I don't like the hit to the quarterback rule. You know, I, I just think that unless you're actually pummeling the guy to the ground, I think the benefit of the doubt going to go the defence. I know we've got to protect the talented quarterbacks, but there was a couple of hits there that I didn't like. But the, the Giants, I mean, they just pressed self-destruct. You know, they got the twitches on the line. You know, that cost them. Uh, you know, one catch, they should have had a touchdown that got drawn back. I think that's the kind of game Washington may have got it in the win column, but I actually think the Giants aren't too bad going forward, but they're 0-2, and that will bring pressure next week.
0: And, and it'll be a hard one. I mean, to to blow it on that penalty call. Um, you know, ah. you've won the game. Just do the one thing that you need to do and wait till the ball snap, then go. Uh, Do you know what? We talked about this last week. There was a couple of players who cost their teams. We talked about this in the context of Jamie Gillen. And Jamie's mistake was not as big as the mistake uh, from the centre there for the the Giants uh, on that field goal because ultimately he is 100% cost him a victory Um, and it'll be hard and it'll be sore this morning but I agree with you I think there's a lot to like and even you know Barkley had one good run but really was quite ineffective Daniel Jones looked not too bad at all they need to cut out the mistakes they need to cut out the errors you could see the passion from Galladay and him arguing on this touchline that, for me, can be seen as, oh, that's a bad sign. For me, this early in the season, it shows a passion that you want out your football team. And therefore, they need to take that. They need to take this. They've got a long week now to go and heal, to go and get better and come back and be stronger because of it. There's signs of life in New York. I get where it's hard. I get it's a difficult place to be. But I genuinely think there's a lot to be semi-positive about that they can, they can move forward with.
1: Yeah, in Washington, I thought, you know, Chan Heineke, I thought a yeah. terrific game. You know, the interception could have cost them the game yes. and it should have cost them yes. the game. Um, you know, it, and the Giants should have seen it out from there. But he had the guts to come back and get that that game winning drive. And you could see that the, the image of the game for me, Cameron, was the kick going wide, but Heineke not panicking and just pointing to say, no, 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 Listen, we're going to do this again, aren't we? Um, and, and that I thought was really, really interesting. To watch. But yeah, interesting times for both franchises.
0: Um, lots more stories breaking, including the fact that we're gonna get our first in-season um hard knocks, but we'll keep all that for the podcast uh, next week. Uh, enjoy your football. Keep an eye on our social media on Twitter. We're giving away another bottle of Loch Lomond NFL Scotland whiskey, a simple giveaway that's going on over the weekend. And of course, every single week of the season we're giving away a bottle of whiskey, two tumblers and a pair of ball bags underwear just simply by putting in a nomination for our weekly awards. Keep your eyes peeled for that. Get onto the NFL Scotland website and you will be able to put your nominations in from now. So we've already got one game, so the nomination form is open. But that is the full-time whistle for episode 161. We really hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you for listening. Please do share your thoughts on social media, at Scotland NFL on Twitter and search for NFL Scotland on Facebook.
1: And our thanks once again to the great Kevin Harlan for his time and for his insight, what it's like to be an NFL broadcaster on behalf of Cameron and myself thanks for listening bye for now